You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been living under a pile of boxes at my paying job, which has pretty much owned my life this week. Thank God I had time to write these scripts ahead of time this month because I don't think I would have gotten any sleep this week otherwise. For those of you who don't work in film, there's way more paperwork involved than you can ever freaking imagine. It's insane. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Orphan First Kill, which you can also watch on streaming if you so choose. I liked the first Orphan movie. It came out like, what, 10, 12 years ago? But this one asks for way too much suspension of belief for anything that happens in this movie to actually happen, especially knowing the twist from the first film. For example, her whole grift of being like a little girl when she's actually like a full-ass woman with dwarfism. She pretends to be a missing child in this one, a, a missing American child in this one, and she gets found in Eastern Europe in, I guess, 2009, 2010, after disappearing from from her affluent Connecticut family four years earlier. Like, DNA testing was a thing. Plus, she would have gone through a thorough medical exam when she was found. And you're telling me nobody did this? Come on. Also, every scene until people actually start catching on is mostly just everyone remarking on how different she is. We get it. The point is gotten. Overall, it's an average horror movie with horror movie logic with a twist I saw coming from a mile away because of how much they overdrive the point that she's different. But the twist is not enough to save you from the slog of the first hour, so for me, it's just a meh. On to this week's topic. This week, it's a speed run through the history of Italian cinema, the industry that probably has the most different and diverse genres and movements within it. We're going through the major movements, the major filmmakers, and how Italian cinema became one of the most prevalent markets in the world. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. was another early adapter to cinema, having begun not long after those pesky Lumiere boys introduced their cinematograph to the world in December 1895. Has this date been burned into your brain yet? It surely has for mine. 
The first Italian film director, Vittorio Calcina, I think is how you pronounce it, was actually a collaborator of the Lumiere brothers. And his first short was an actuality featuring the Pope at the time, Leo XIII, in February 1896. After this, Calcina was made the official photographer of the House of Savoy, the Italian ruling family at the time, also the last one, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. The Savoys operated like England does now, more or less. There was like an elected government with a prime minister, but there was still a royal like figurehead. I believe this is called a parliamentary monarchy, but don't quote me on that. But that's what was happening. Not really important for this episode. Just kind of give you context. Anyway, during his tenure in this position, Falcina made his first fully Italian production, which has a very long title. I'm just going to say in English. It was His Majesty the King Umberto and His Majesty the Queen Margarita strolling through the Monza Park. This was also shot in 1896. It should be mentioned also that Italian inventor Filoteo Alberini had started the process of patenting his own filming and projection device in 1894, which he called the kinetograph, which was inspired by Thomas Edison's kinetoscope. In fact, the machine had been finished a full year before the Lumieres had finished theirs, but due to an error with the paperwork, it had taken a year for the patent to go through. Due to this, again, the Lumieres got the credit. In his New York Times obituary, Alberini would be credited as the inventor of motion picture devices, despite them not having a long-reaching impact. Another early actuality filmmaker from this era was Italo Pacioni, whom shot things quite similar to what the Lumieres did, that being trains, dancing people, and less common things like a madman's cage from 1896. Pacioni also invented his own camera. In fact, despite many technological breakthroughs within the Italian industry involving the camera and projection systems, little to no credit is given to them as the years marched on or really in any of the textbooks. As the Lumieres toured Italy with their films, shooting new ones along the way thanks to their trainees, several Italian filmmakers would begin emerging. It didn't take long for film to become an incredibly popular novelty within the country. Cinema's ability to cover aspects of humanity and the world around them fascinated the Italian people, from the poorest individuals to the wealthiest, unlike other countries where it appealed to the wealthiest first and then kind of trickled down when they lost interest in it. By the turn of the century, moving pictures in Italy were mainly parts of traveling shows shown mostly in cafes and even just out on the street. Despite its popularity with the masses, it was still considered a mirror like passing fancy until major studios began to emerge, including Cine in Rome and Ambrosia Film and Itala Film in Turin. Through these companies, a sense of organization and legitimacy began to take hold. Early films coming out of these studios were often based on books and plays, which gave a greater formality to the art form and changed it from just everyday life, like home video-esque, to actual storytelling. Cinemas would soon begin popping up to house these bigger films, and it became, you know, a more stationary thing, a more stable industry. Over the next several years, basically until World War I, Italian cinema boomed. In 1912 alone, over 1,000 films were produced in Italy. In 1911, the first Italian feature film was produced four years before Hollywood's, which was L'Inferno, which was an adaptation of the Divine Comedy. Quo Vidi from 1913 was one of the first blockbuster films using thousands of extras and super lavish sets. Italy also made the first official epic picture with 1914's Cabiria, which took two years to shoot and was the most expensive film ever made up to that point. 
Cabiria is considered Italy's most famous silent film and also holds the distinction of being the first film to ever be screened at the White House. The 1910s also saw the Cinema Futurista movement in Italy, which was the first avant-garde movement within film. This movement was inspired by Futurism, which was a social and artistic movement popular in the country at this time. Futurism glorified modernity as a means to liberate Italy from its past. The most notable film out of this movement is probably 1917's Teus, which was directed by Anton Giulio Bragaglia and would be a major influence upon German Expressionism that would follow shortly thereafter. World War I was hard on Italy's film industry, which struggled to find an international audience after the war. To combat this, several major studios formed the Unione Cinematografica Italiana to coordinate a national strategy for film production. While this was a good idea on paper, due to a wide disconnect between production and movie theaters, some films took years after they were completed to finally get released in theaters, if they got released at all. Also to contend with, of course, was the rise of Mussolini and fascism after World War I. To explain part of why this was, it's time for that bit in all these European film episodes where I very much oversimplified the state of a country after one of the world wars. In the case of Italy, the government was slowly taken over by the Fascist Party of Italy, which had been founded in March of 1919 by Benito Mussolini. He gained power by exploiting the middle class and claiming that he would bring a stabilization to said middle class. As the socialist and fascist political movements began to clash within the country, eventually King Victor Emmanuel III chose the fascists to form the next government, with Mussolini as the new prime minister. Through intimidation and violence, the fascists gained control over the parliament after the election of 1924. Over the next several years, Mussolini would dismantle nearly all of the checks and balances that had been put in place until he was answering really only to the king of Italy himself. Because of this, throughout the 1920s, Italy's film market struggled to find its footing in any market really, as there were other places in the world that were just overall leaps and bounds ahead of them technologically speaking, and you know, they had other shit to focus on. Cinema production would end up heavily reducing throughout the 1920s until the end of the decade when a few bigger scaled films were made, but they just still weren't, they just still weren't good enough. Italian films were only really seen in Spain and Germany, and... Eventually, this led to Italian cinema reaching its lowest financial and production point in 1931. The first sound picture to come out of Italy was Gennaro Righelli's The Song of Love from 1930. With the advent of sound came incredibly strict rules from the government as to what could or could not be featured in an Italian film. For example, divorce and adultery was illegal at this time in Italy and therefore could not be shown in Italian films from this time. Because of this, light comedies called Telefoni Bianchi, or white telephone films, were very popular. They were called this as the homes of the main characters in these films would often feature a white telephone, which was a status symbol of the wealthy, as most plebeians at this time had a black telephone if they had one at all. Telefoni Bianchi films were characterized by their lavish sets and emphasized conservative values, the family life with a healthy dose of authority, of course. They also had, by and large, not-so-subtle fascist messages in them, but I digress. Oftentimes, these films would take place in a distant locale, usually a real or imagined Eastern European country, but would always have an Italian protagonist. A good example of Telefone Bianchi is probably 1932's Paradiso. 
The antithesis of the white telephone films would be the calligraphismo films, which were comedies that were more artistic and a little bit more contemporary, but these were far less prevalent. No films from this time also showed a contemporary look at Italians, a truthful one anyway, leading many to refer to this entire era of film during Mussolini's reign as the Black 20 Years or Il Ventennio Nero. In 1934, the Italian fascist government created the General Directorate for Cinema, which was led by Vittorio Mussolini. Guess whose son he is? This group wanted to establish a town that would be fully devoted to the art of cinema that would be located southeast of Rome. This was soon realized and was named Cinecita, meaning Cinema City. Cinecita was built under the tagline, Cinema is the most powerful weapon. While it sounds like this was just going to be a propaganda factory, and it was to some extent, Cinecita was also built in an attempt to bolster the Italian film market and to make it a viable commodity outside of the tri-country area. Construction for Cinecita was completed in 1937 and was essentially just a one-stop shop for everything you'd need to make a movie. And it also, as a cherry on top, had theaters, technical services, and even a cinematography school that had been founded a couple years earlier. Cinecita Studios became Europe's most advanced production facility at the time, and unsurprisingly, this led to the advancement of Italian cinema as an art form. To this day, though it's lost quite a bit of its prevalence, many films are still shot entirely in Cinecita. When World War II started, Benito Mussolini would use Cinecita for the production of fascist propaganda. All out-and-out, aggressively forward propaganda was actually just confined to newsreels, but films coming out of Cinecita would also be heavily censored to only reflect the fascist way of being. Cinecita would be almost completely destroyed during the bombing of Rome during 1943 and 44. Later, the studio's ruins would be used as a refugee camp from 1945 to 47 and was eventually rebuilt in the 50s. Just before the end of World War II, the Italian neorealism movement began taking shape. This started with filmmakers like Francesco Di Roberti and his apprentice Roberto Rossellini, who began shooting films in real-life locations while working for the Italian armed forces. Their combination of documentary footage and a scripted narrative led to what one fascist director called a, quote, fictional documentary. This type of filmmaking would directly inspire the emerging neorealist movement. Neorealist films typically focus on members of the working class, so pretty much the opposite of those white telephone movies, and were shot on location because pretty much all of the studios had been destroyed during World War II, so shooting in real locations wasn't so much a choice as a necessity. Many neorealist films, though not all, also use non-professional actors. The first officially labeled neorealist film is widely, though not universally, considered to be Lucino Visconti's 1943 film Obsessione, though there were others that technically did come before. This film was based on the novel The Postman Always Rings Twice and tells the story of a drifter and his hotel-owning mistress as the duo plot to murder her elder husband. Obsessione angered fascist officials whom were still in power at this time. Vittorio Mussolini, after seeing the film, reportedly declared, This is not Italy, before storming out of the theater. The film was subsequently banned in the remaining fascist-controlled parts of Italy. Only about a dozen or so neorealist films would be made before the fall of the fascist regime later that year. Neorealism exploded after the war, though many outside of Italy didn't realize that it had actually started before the war had ended. As you'll see, this was by design. 
During the fall of Mussolini and fascism in Italy and the rise of the country's Democratic Republic following World War II, the Italian film industry lost its regulation, which allowed many filmmakers whom had not been friendly to the fascist movement to pick up a camera once more or for the first time. Like French New Wave, the neorealist style was developed in part by a circle of film critics that worked at the magazine Cinema. The group had been banned from writing anything about politics up to this point, as the editor-in-chief at the time for the magazine was none other than Vittorio Mussolini, so instead the guys had to rail on the white telephone movies. Many of the other filmmakers at this time that would develop neorealism had been trained making the calligraphismo films, though the movement itself was actually quite different. They were also needed because all of the fascist-leaning directors and actors as well, which explains the rise in the usage of non-professional actors, would soon find themselves unemployed, so there was a lot of openings. Neorealism, to the world at least, appeared out of thin air, with no ties to Italy's fascist past, which of course is not accurate, but was the image the filmmakers wanted to project. It was new and it was real. But, you know, it had started before that they were allowed to be that way. It would actually take decades for film critics and theorists and the like to turn a harsh eye on this movement and its mythical emergence. In the spring of 1945, Mussolini had been executed and Italy was liberated from German occupation. This period in filmmaking, known as the Italian Spring, broke from the old ways of filmmaking and fostered a more realistic approach to making films. Italian cinema as a whole, not just neorealism, quickly went from the soundstage sets to shooting on location in the countryside and in the city streets. Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City would be the first major Italian film produced after the war and would win the grand prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1946, announcing to the world that Italian cinema was back and bigger than ever. Ironically, Rome Open City was not very popular within Italy itself. Neorealism was not a long-lasting movement, nor a very financially successful one, and it spanned only about five or six years, as, like French New Wave, there wasn't a consistency between the films and there was not a solid regulation in the market at first. The films from this movement only made up about 10% of the market with, within Italy itself, as Italians had no interest in seeing themselves in their current state reflected back at them. They knew shit was bleak, they were living it. Also, the constant films about working class people and poverty and sadness, and these films didn't have happy endings or in some cases any real ending at all. And that was beginning to be seen as just one giant big fat bummer as the national feeling at this time was one of prosperity and change. And that led to Italians at this time spending more money to go see Hollywood films than their own. Also, like Germany, Italian income levels began to rise, and that pretty much de-relevized, if that's a word, the neorealistic movement. Despite its short life, neorealism was incredibly influential at the international level and historically speaking as well. Other major examples of this genre, if you're curious, include 1946 Paisa, which is the sequel to Rome Open City. There's The Bicycle Thief from 1948, which is the one that film schools absolutely love to show you. And finally, there's also, let's go with The Earth Trembles, also from 1948. Those are very prime examples. Some films which were similar in tone would be referred to as pink neorealism from this movement, though these films were typically much lighter in tone and focused on elements of the nation of Italy's healing and would be released after the official end of the era, which for neorealism is considered to be 1952's Umberto D. Sophia Loren is a notable actress to come out of this era. 
Out of the bummer of neorealism came films that pretty much just captured existential issues as well as psychological realism. Earlier adapters into this movement in the 1950s included Roberto Rossellini and his work with actress and future wife Ingrid Bergman, which included 1950's Stromboli, a film about a Lithuanian interned in Italy whose only escape out of the camp is to marry an Italian fisherman and former POW she meets while there. Another major filmmaker from this era was Michelangelo Antonioni, whose first feature film, Story of a Love Affair from 1950, brought elements of Hollywood noir films to Italy, which included long shots, tracking shots popularized in noir films, as well as a more modern editing style. Alienation is the name of the game in this era of filmmaking. This existential period would be a buffer for essentially what came next. While he would not be the first person of this new era of filmmaking, Federico Fellini, who did apprentice in the neorealistic styles, would become probably the most internationally recognized Italian filmmaker by the 1960s. Fellini's early works, though, while released during this aforementioned existential time in the cinema, would be more removed from social issues than other films at this time, but he clearly had, like, the modern Italian in mind when making all of his films, which are generally classified more as art films. Instead of having his characters shaped by the world around them and their social class, Fellini's characters were governed by both their social responsibilities as well as their feelings and personality quirks, which led to generally more likable, well-rounded protagonists. Fellini also moved away from the realist of it all. For example, in his film I, Vitelloni from 1953, more time in the film is devoted to the characters' fantasy lives and their dreams than their actual realities. Fellini's films would continue developing into a style that focused more on a person's dreams and desires rather than the plight of an entire group of people, which led to a more intimate, personal type of filmmaking, and that would be the kind of films that would turn him into an international celebrity. Fellini's 1960 satirical comedy La Dolce Vita was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and actually even added words to the English language like paparazzi. That was not a word until La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita also held the record as the highest grossing European film of all time for decades. Fellini would win Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars four times in his life, more than any other director. His film Eight and a Half from 1963 is often considered one of the best films ever made. Fellini's work would inspire many modern filmmakers, notably our friend Terry Gilliam, who has had many of his films described as being Fellini-esque. There are several other popular like art directors from this period, notably the aforementioned Michelangelo Antonioni, whose most famous work from this era is probably Blow Up from 1966. He's who you want to watch to see how like a master filmmaker uses actors as subjects rather than just meat puppets. There's also Lucino Visconti, who I think I mentioned earlier, whom during this time was known for making like sweeping historical films. Example of this would be Rocco and his brothers from 1960, which dealt with like southern migrant workers who become prize fighters in the hopes of rising out of poverty. This art movement was widely a financial and critical smash and widened the possibility of what Italian films could be while influencing filmmakers the world over. Fellini and cohorts were integral members of an Italian cinema industry that as a whole was just fully thriving at this time and would continue to do so for the next 20 years. In fact, these films coming out of Italy from this era would have probably the largest impact on the entirety of filmmaking. 
An average of 200 Italian films are being made each year during this period. And thanks to a fully fledgling Hollywood at this time, because of television, echoes of HUAC, migration to the suburbs, other crises, and just old dudes not knowing what a new generation of youths wanted out of their entertainment, allowed Italian films to surge internationally. One of the most popular genres driving this came out of pink neorealism and is known as the Commedia all'Italiana, or comedy in the Italian way, which were films that were more commercial in nature, but with political overtones. This movement more or less kicked off with Mario Manicelli's Big Deal on Madonna Street from 1958. This genre is characterized by its satire of manners. Um, there was both farcical and a little dirty humor. It had a strong focus on modern, more controversial topics of the day like sex, birth control, the control of the Catholic Church, while also dealing with the modern Italians and their way of life. By and large, these films focus on the middle class, though there were exceptions. I would also deal with sadness while also providing social criticism, so they, by and large, leaned a little bit more into the dark area of comedy. Oftentimes, there were multiple plots going on, and everybody was confused, and just misunderstandings abound. There's always a lot going on in these bad boys. Commedia all'Italiana film also dealt with controversial topics like divorce, which was illegal in the country until 1970, and the drastic steps people will go to be promiscuous. One such film is called Divorce Italian Style, which released in 1961. I have not seen this one yet, but I really want to try and see it this weekend after reading about it, because it sounds crazy, and it's on HBO Max, so it is easily within my grasp. It's about a Sicilian nobleman who wants to divorce his wife, but can't because it's illegal. So he tries to make his wife have an affair, which is also illegal and a punishable offense. So, said nobleman, hires a painter to seduce her so he can quote-unquote catch them in the act that he, you know, made happen essentially. And then the nobleman could honor kill his wife, get a baby sentence for honorably murdering an adulteress, and then marry his mistress, who by the by is also his cousin. See what I mean by a lot going on. Anyway, this genre that I'm definitely diving more into if I ever get some free time was very big in popularity from about 1958 till 1968. It was still around, but it was gone mostly by the 1980s due to its most popular players kind of aging out. Around this time also, Hollywood had begun shifting its film productions to Europe and Italy became one of the major countries to benefit from this influx, especially at Cinecita. This era saw the remake of 1913's Quo Vidi from 1951, Roman Holiday was shot there in 53, and probably, most famously, Cleopatra shot there in 1963. The casts would often be international in scope, but the films were always pretty much primarily in English. This era was known as Hollywood on the Tiber and went on from about 1950 to 1970. Also during this time came the emergence of the peplum genre, a.k.a. the sword and sandal genre. If you're curious, a peplum is the name for like the skirt outfit that male characters wore in these films. This is one of the genres that became a much needed entry point into the American film market for Italy. They were mythological or biblical in scope, and these low-budget period adventure dramas appealed to pretty much every male moviegoer in existence. They were very much for the dudes. At their peak popularity, 
Italy between 57 and 65, about 10% of all Italian film production was peplum films. While they were set in like generally classic eras, just like sometime ambiguously in like the late BCs, early CEs, and history is very screwy in these. For example, you had like heroes of Greek mythology going at it with indigenous people in Mexico and Central America. It makes no sense. They're weird boys. It's fine. It's just what it was. Actors in these films, or at least the leads, were often bodybuilders whom were American, like Steve Reeves, for example, and they often co-starred very busty Italian starlets. Italian directing icon Sergio Leone would actually begin his career in this genre, as did several new filmmakers in this next generation. Directly out of the Peplum films came the Spaghetti Westerns, which were an international craze. These films differed from more traditional like Hollywood Westerns and that they were actually shot in Europe on limited budgets, but nevertheless had just gorgeous cinematography. Sergio Leone, easily the biggest name to come out of the genre to the casual film fan, and he made the Dollars Trilogy starring Clint Eastwood. The final entry was 1966, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and that is considered one of the best westerns, spaghetti or not, ever made. Spaghetti westerns revitalized a genre frankly done to death in Hollywood by adding graphic violence, dark humor, and a far more sinister sense of the world at large. The spaghetti western would even appear in the actual west itself instead of using Spain or another similar looking location, with Leone making Once Upon a Time in the West, which was shot in Monument Valley, a favorite locale of John Ford's back in the day in 1968. Spaghetti Westerns would seemingly consume Italian filmmaking at this time, though many of the films were just basically slight variations of the one that came before, and there was a whole lot of sequels. There's not a lot of diversity in these movies. Very popular. It's like superhero movies. Very popular, but how different really are they other than like changing the names and the superpowers and the thing? That's that's kind of how Spaghetti Westerns got. Also at this time was the spaghetti horror genre, also known as giallo films, which is Italian for yellow, and these films were named after the primary color of the covers of pulp Italian mystery and horror novels at this time. These were very popular horror movies, and the most famous director probably to come out of the genre is Dario Argento, who started with films like The Cat of Nine Tales from 1971. Giallo films had gore galore and are often characterized as being basically a hulked up, very violent B-movie a la RKO. From this genre also came the cannibal film, one of which has arguably my favorite story about a film being made. Director Ruggiero Diodato combined a cannibal film with a documentary and in turn made a mock mondo film. A mondo film was another popular genre in Italy at this time that was basically documentaries about darker things and made one of, if not the first found footage film that's actually fictional, which was Cannibal Holocaust from 1980. This film is so violent and grotesque that people thought what they were seeing was real. Then a magazine published an article stating that it was real and therefore a snuff film, so naturally people freaked the F out. Diodato was arrested on suspicion of murder, had to explain how the effects were achieved in the film, and even had to present the actors in court to prove that he had not murdered them. To this day, Cannibal Holocaust is considered one of the most controversial films, unsurprisingly, ever made. 
Speaking of which, Giallo, other horror films, Mondo films, and even some of the Eurospy spoof films, which were made up the popularity of James Bond that Italy was putting out at this time, have often all been grouped together as exploitation films. Many of these films were, or are, banned in other countries due to their subject matters and graphic content. Best example from this era that I'm aware of is probably Salo, which is a horror art film from 1976, and it might be the most messed up movie I've ever ever seen. If you go looking for it, do not blame me. You've been warned. Social tension began to rise in the late 1960s in Italy in protest of what many of the younger Italians viewed to be, and probably rightfully so, an overly authoritarian and patriarchal government. Due to the Vietnam War, anti-American sentiments were also at an all-time high. Protests that began on college campuses soon devolved into full-fledged riots. This level of political violence, organized crime, drugs, inflation, and terrorism soon reached an all-time high as the political factions in Italy were warring. As a result of all of this, political-themed cinema soon became very, very prevalent and popular. Many of them, namely Il Conformista, based on a book of the same name from 1970 directed by Bertolucci, was an attempt to interpret the cause of Italy's fascist past. Lena Wertmiller became the first female nominated for Best Director in 1976 for her film Seven Beauties. That film dealt with an Italian man in a concentration camp and his incredibly violent and troubled past. A desire to look into the state of Italy further led to the investigative film, led by directors like Francesco Rossi, whose film The Matei Affair from 1972 is a super dark documentary about the disappearance of a manager of a large Italian state group. One of the best known films to come out of Italy from the 1970s is easily Last Tango of Paris, which came out in 1972. Once again directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, the film dealt extensively with sexuality and would end up being Bertolucci's ticket to Hollywood. Like many countries, the 1980s was not Italy's best showing filmmaking-wise. By this time, the Italian film audience had shrunk about 75%, and this had happened in just about 15 years. Many of the major Italian producers, like Dino De Laurentiis, ended up leaving the Italian film market altogether to work elsewhere as a result of this and other changes that were recurring within the film industry. Italian cinemas began, by and large, showing mostly Hollywood films to stay in business. In the 1980s, Hollywood Hollywood films made up about 75% of the Italian box office. In an attempt to support the film industry, back in 1965, Articolo 28, part of an act to regulate cinema in Italy, led to a reorganization of how films were distributed and made within the country. While this was well-intentioned, this would cause a decline in domestic ticket sales and the aforementioned exodus of major Italian talent. Articolo 28 was an attempt to help first-time directors make films outside of the studio system, but many of these films were never finished or released. With the loss of many of their best producers and talent in general, many directors found themselves acting and writing their projects as well. Attempts to find new ways to finance and make films were also drummed up. For example, production companies like Douay Film was founded, which relied heavily on the profits of the production company's prior films to make the next year's films while using freelance craftsmen as their crew. Italian film mostly survived thanks to their heavily genre-based content as new filmmakers began emerging from the chaos of a disorganized industry that was now at last having to go against television, which went from government-controlled to privately owned in 1976. 
Television programming within Italy soon revolved around American films, and later larger corporations would expand in television as well, and you're never going to get a lot of diversity that way. The two major corporations to do this were Fininvest, now known as Mediaset, and Chechigori Group, whom together would form Penta Film, which existed from only about 89 to 94, but would make up 25% of film production in Italy at this time, and therefore distribution at this time. Actually, to this day, about 80% of Italian films are at least partially produced by one of these companies. In 1997, Nani Moretti's documentary short The Day of the Premiere of Close Up would critique the control of these corporations over the film market, which would lead to a decrease in art house cinema as the blockbuster commercial films were the only things really being released into major cinemas. Moretti would become one of the first members of New Italian Cinema, which had begun to emerge towards the end of the 1980s. Moretti's best known film, which gave him international recognition, would be 1993's Dear Diary. The most popular films to come out of Italy in the 80s were probably the films of Massimo Troisi, who was an aforementioned triple threat and a comedic genius. Troisi often appeared as a Pulcinella-type figure, which was a Commedia dell'arte figure from the 17th century. It's the guy in the white jester-looking outfit with the pointy white hat and the black mask with the exaggerated nose. That's a Pulcinella. Of his films, one of the most notable ones is Il Postino from 1994, which focused on the social life of Southern Italians. Italian comedy flourished in the 80s and 90s thanks to its sustained popularity within the country. The other big one to come out of the 80s is, of course, Cinema Paradiso from 1988. Directed by another new Italian cinema director, Giuseppe Tornatore, the film got international acclaim and was an almost instantaneous classic. With Italy's financial crisis coming to an end in the early 1990s, the Italian film market continued to decline. By the mid-90s, the Italian genre cinema that we've gone over ad nauseum today had all but disappeared. It would take a new generation of filmmakers to bring back Italian cinema. In 1998, Roberto Benigni won three Oscars for his film Life is Beautiful, a comedic drama that deals with the Holocaust. This is the guy who, like, climbed over the seats when he won the Oscars. This film also brought Italians back to the cinema, and the film became the highest-grossing Italian film in Italy, which was a mantle it would hold until 2011. Fun fact, it was one of Pope John Paul II's top five movies. As the new millennium dawned, the Italian film industry continued to heal. By 2005, Italy was actually producing a similar number of films to what they'd been making back in the 1970s. Today, Italian cinema makes up about 31% of its country's box office, which is a lot better than it was, you know, in the decades previous, and the films continue to get acclaim the world over. The Great Beauty, for example, from 2014, which was directed by Paolo Sorrentino, won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. Then there was the 2016 film Perfect Strangers, which has become the most remade film of all time, with 18 versions of the film having been made internationally. In 2017, Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino, received worldwide acclaim and recognition as well. They're still, they're still doing it, guys. Today, Italian cinema is a wide-ranging industry, in many ways encapsulating its entire history preceding it, and shows no signs of slowing down. Oh, grazie. Musica maestro. Auguri. Grazie. Prego, principessa. Lei. Mm. 
Veloce, principessa. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. You've also got Buy Me a Coffee. I'm actually recording this on a Friday night, so there is no coffee this week, but most days there will be coffee. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the history of British cinema and its effect on the industry as a whole. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. (laughs) 